Welcome back, everyone, to Stethoscope, a podcast from the Northern Colorado Medical Society, bringing new scope on your community of physicians, healthcare topics, NCMS leadership, and more. You know me, I'm Paige, the Executive Director of the Northern Colorado Medical Society and the lucky host of Stethoscope. The mission of NCMS is to advocate on behalf of our physician members to encourage a strong and healthy medical profession. A part of encouraging that strong and healthy medical profession is finding ways for our physicians to connect with their fellow members and other physicians across the state and learn about the great work that they're doing. That being said, I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. Anna User, who joined the Maternal Fetal Medicine Division at the University of Colorado in 2016. She received her medical degree from the University of Vermont College of Medicine. She completed her OBGYN residency at the University of Minnesota and Maternal Fetal Medicine Fellowship training at the University of Colorado. Dr. User is the division's expert in viruses during pregnancy, being the lead MFM in both Zika protocols and active in education on COVID and vaccines for the section. She also has a special interest in the effects of living at altitude on pregnancy physiology, preeclampsia, and the effects of magnesium sulfate. Dr. User, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Of course. We're so excited to, to get to chat with you today about you know, a timely topic that I think is not going away anytime soon, which is the COVID-19 vaccine. And of course, um, your opinion when it comes to women who are pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant and how that might um, affect their decision and the science behind it. But before we get started, um, you know, before we take a dive, deeper dive into this today, I would love to allow our listeners to get to know you a bit better. So before we hop into the medicine, we hear that you are a new mom yourself. So this, of course, only lends more expertise for you to talk about this. But first of all, you know, congratulations. And is, is motherhood everything you thought it would be? Well, thank you. Yeah. So I had my daughter Nell about uh, four months ago at the end of January. So um, my primary disclosure for this topic is I came into it by motherhood and maternal fetal medicine, not so much because I have any specific background in infectious diseases or immunology. It just was a very timely topic for me as I was going through my pregnancy all of last year. So um, motherhood is very great in some ways and uh, very sleep depriving in other ways. And that's currently the battle we're fighting. So if I have any word finding that I'm going to blame it on my daughter, but as cute as she is, she uh, doesn't always help my sleep. So but yeah, so far so fair. good with the motherhood thing. We're all alive still. <laughs> hey, that's all that matters. <laughs> well, yeah, again, congratulations. I, um, in the article that was published by UC Health, she is absolutely adorable. So, um, great work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm partial, but I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I would love for you to tell us just a bit about, you know, your passion for fetal medicine. And did you know this is where you would end up? So when I started college, I did not necessarily know I was going to become a physician in any way, shape, or form, but I ended up deciding to go to University of Vermont for both a medical degree as well as a PhD. So I was actually thinking I was going to be more on the research side of medicine when I started that journey. But as I went through it, I really got more involved in, you know, the physiology of everything and being there in the operating room and being a practicing doctor versus just a clinician that's thinking about research topics primarily. So I fell into the maternal fetal side of things because I got started with this idea that, you know, we always think about physiology, but then as you were going through medical school, you learned about, okay, there's some ways that female physiology is very different than male physiology. And then the pregnant body is like this whole other physiologic time. And it's not really studied. And that's always been kind of one of those things where it was sort of a, out of protection. Like we don't want to harm pregnant women by not studying things that we don't know about in them. But in some way that meant that we never actually knew very much about pregnancy physiology. And so 
my research in grad school was on some of those differences in pregnancy physiology. And then that really led me to maternal fetal medicine, which is this field where we're dealing with two, not just one patient. And we're often balancing limited information against how we need to take care of our patient and make kind of the best decisions with potentially not great information. And that actually, the vaccine kind of knowledge gap fits right into that. You know, in pregnancy, it's very rare that we ever have perfect information about how we're going to use a specific medication because not very many have been studied in moms and babies. And so we're always sort of making these educated decisions on potentially limited information. That's, it's a great point. And it's, it's funny to think about it that way, you know, that pregnancy is this beautiful thing that you're right. You know, it's almost like when it happens to a woman, it's like, okay, we're going to let you be for nine months and just be your incubator. And we're not going to touch you or look at you or breathe on you. And (laughs) it's great that we have people like you that are passionate about, well, we need some of these answers and there's a, there's a proper way to do this. So that's, that's awesome. Um, so as we, as we sort of get back on track of really what you're here to talk to us about today. So you participated in a study that was put on by the U S center of disease control for in prevention, the CDC to monitor how pregnant women have done after receiving either the Pfizer or Moderna COVID-19 vaccines. So can you tell us a bit more about this study, please? Yeah. So this is the VSAFE data collection system that the CDC has available to anyone that's gotten the vaccine. And so it's usually a QR code that you would scan with your phone after receiving the vaccine. And then it's a series of text messages usually that prompt you to go to the website and fill out either that day's or that week's um, survey about any symptoms you're having, any problems you've been having. And early on in that data collection, they were smart enough and they put in the question of, are you pregnant or are you breastfeeding? And so they buy, they got this whole sample of women, including myself, that participated in the data collection and indicated that they were pregnant. And so that's where they got the data for those 35,000 women that they've published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently to show what kind of side effects pregnant women were having versus non-pregnant women and if there was anything known as far as complications to date. And so I happen to be one of the 35,000 plus women in that. And I was joking with somebody else. So that's probably the closest I'm ever going to get to being published in the New England Journal of Medicine, (laughs) being a data participant in that study, but I'll take it. Well, it seems to me that you're pretty passionate and you're going to do some great things for medicine. So I would beg to differ, but we'll see. Um, And that's a great segue. So you received your first dose of the vaccine when you were about 32 weeks pregnant, I believe. Um, And then your second dose at 35 weeks. So what kind of side effects did you have? So um, after the first dose, I really just had relief and excitement that I was, you know, finally getting to be one of the vaccinated women and also that they were letting the pregnant women choose to get it if we wanted it. Um, I got the second dose about three weeks later. And like many people, I got more symptoms than from the second dose because I really had none from the first dose. But after the second dose, I had kind of some fever and chills that set up, set on about 12 hours after I got the dose and lasted for about 12 hours. But otherwise, no issues overall. So kind of an evening of fever and chills, which I was trying to look at in a positive light and that that was my immune system responding, which meant that my immune system was working and the vaccine was doing its job. But yeah, I did have a kind of crummy night after the second dose, but that was short-lived, thankfully. Well, it's good to hear. It sounds like you had very similar side effects to a lot of people, especially, you know, you being a younger woman. Um, and I, I had the same side effects with my second dose. And it was one of those things where, yeah, you didn't want the fever and the chills, but it was almost like a relief, like, oh, it's working. Like, yep. thank goodness. <laughs> so, um, 
Is there any advice that you would give women on specific timing to get the vaccine if they're pregnant? Like, should you wait after the first trimester? Is there any any data on that? There's not a lot of data. To be fair, the V-safe data that we have to this point is primarily people that were in the end of their pregnancies who chose to get the vaccine. Part of that is also that those were the people that have already delivered. Women that may have gotten it in their early part of pregnancy are hopefully still pregnant. And so we don't have the outcome data for their pregnancy yet. There's some discussion of the fever and chills that can be associated with the vaccine if those fevers would be high enough to cause concerns in pregnancy. Mm. It's, you know, there's not great data, but a lot of, there is some theoretical concern that very high fevers could have concerns for neural tube defects, which would be like spina bifida if it occurs early on in the first trimester. But most of the fevers that people are reporting are not that high. And the data on if a maternal fever is actually severe enough to cause spina bifida is limited as well, especially because that happens so early that a lot of women don't even realize they're pregnant when that structure is forming in a baby. And so my general advice is that if you're really nervous and and you know you're pregnant, you can wait until outside the first trimester if that feels okay to you. But realistically, we don't have any strong data at this point that you would need to wait that time period. No, that's a great point. And thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And it's so hard to talk about any data when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine, because we're we're collecting it as we go, exactly. um, quite honestly. But um, it's just good to hear, you know, your perspective as, you know, an expert in this field. Um, and if I'm correct, I the immunity passed on to your daughter, correct, from your vaccine. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about this and the science behind that? Yeah, so that's something that we've known about for a long time, that part of a baby's early immune system is built from the mother's immune system. And so that we've used this theory for many years in the, how that we use like the pertussis vaccine, the whooping cough vaccines recommended for every woman during every pregnancy, specifically so we can get those antibodies that her body makes to the vaccine to the baby and help protect the baby until it's old enough to get its vaccine itself. And so the science of using vaccines in pregnancy to help the baby it has been out there. And there's been some studies that have proven that the COVID antibodies are present in cord blood, they're present in breast milk, they're present in the baby's bloodstream if they've been born to a mom who got the vaccine or had COVID. And so it's a further evidence of this principle that this is how the baby's immune system is built and starts with antibodies from the mother. And so, yeah, anyone that got the, the vaccine, especially in the third trimester, when those antibodies passed to the highest degree, was passing on antibodies to their child. And women who breastfeed are also able to pass on antibodies during the breastfeeding relationship also. So we know that this is an additional benefit for the families of women who choose to get it during pregnancy or breastfeeding, that they'll get those antibodies for their babies as well, especially since that right now is going to be the last group of, you know, people that are able to get the vaccine themselves as we're kind of studying it and slowly rolling it back into children. The infants are probably going to be the last group that's eligible for any vaccine. So any protection we can give them through their mothers is a benefit in my opinion. No, absolutely. I think it's, when I learned that, I just thought that was incredible. Um, you know, that you're, if you get the COVID-19 vaccine and then, you know, your baby is born immune. Um, do you know yeah, the how immunity long... may not last forever for the babies, right. but they at least are covered for some period. So, yeah, no, I was going to ask, do you know how long roughly those antibodies last? We're not exactly sure. It's probably on the order of weeks to months. And that would somewhat depend on if the woman's still pregnant or if she's still breastfeeding, because if once the baby's delivered, if the breastfeeding isn't continuing, then those antibodies would wane over time. We don't know exactly how long that period is, but probably on the order of weeks to months. 
Gotcha. Perfect. Well, thank you for that too. Um, and this is a great segue too, because we've kind of tiptoed around it. Do you have a prediction or a timeline when you think the vaccine might be able to be available for infants? Um, I might have my daughter's six month birthday marked on my phone with an email to respond to try to register her for a vaccine trial in children. <laughs> um, but, you know, if they keep on the progress that we've been making, it seems like every few months they're able to open it up to a newer age group as that data goes. I don't know if they're going to have more stringent data collection requirements as we move into younger children. But again, the science of the vaccine we feel very comfortable with using vaccines in these age groups. So hopefully we can continue to show that this vaccine performs in similar ways and has limited concerns like we know of for other vaccines. And so I hope that over the course of hopefully the next six to nine months, most kiddos will be able to be vaccinated. Now, when we extend that to infants, I'm not sure. I mean, that's a great marker for the half birthday, right? You know, yeah. some people just mark the half birthday just to mark it. And I think that's I'm going to try to marker. register my daughter in a clinical yeah. trial, but we'll see if it works. I, I love it. So um, kind of working backwards and when we're talking to women who may be a little, I like to call it vaccine deliberation. I don't necessarily like to call it hesitancy because some people might just be deliberating. So what are some increased risks of contracting COVID for pregnant women? So obviously someone's exposure risk is going to be chief among those. And so I think initially, especially for people like myself who work in healthcare, you have a very very possible exposure risk just in taking care of patients on a day-to-day basis, even with, you know, using the personal protective equipment, you're in situations where you have more potential exposure. And so I think anybody has to look at their individual risk for exposure, whether that's because of their job, their family situation, other things that may be kind of playing a role in their life that may contribute to that. So if you're at higher risk for exposure, then obviously you might benefit more from the vaccine preventing that illness than someone who's at very minimal risk of exposure. So I think that's the kind of the first consideration for people. The other consideration for people is kind of what's their risk tolerance as far as, you know, the risks of potentially getting COVID in pregnancy, which while severe complications are still rare, are more common in pregnant women than women who aren't pregnant. So the low risk of a potentially very serious complication if you get COVID versus theoretical or not known risks for the vaccine during pregnancy. And so every person's going to have kind of a different barometer of how they judge those risks and what concerns them. And for myself, you know, the risk of getting COVID and potentially those very severe complications of COVID was much more concerning than theoretical risks of the vaccine, which the science doesn't really kind of support that there is any any risk present that we know of. So I think each woman is going to weigh those risks themselves. And also part of that risk is what their exposure is. And maybe the underlying conditions too. Are they diabetic? Do they have other health conditions that put them at higher risk in addition to the pregnancy? That may play a role in their decision-making as well. No, that, that's a great way to put it. You know, your barometer of risk and then Wayne, you're right, the theoretical risk of the vaccine and then known risks that we know for now when, you know, you might have a a tough reaction to contracting COVID-19. So um, I think that's a great way to put it. And, you know, I know that you um, help form the future doctors of tomorrow when it comes to fetal medicine. So have you, I mean, I know you're probably just got back from maternity leave as well, but have you started, have you thought about using your personal experience with this specifically and your teaching with medical students who are studying fetal medicine? 
with medical students, I'm very open about it. With patients, I'm very open about it. Even before I went out on maternity leave, I was kind of using myself as, you know, when I would talk to patients that were potentially eligible for it early on with healthcare um, providers, you know, that I was deciding to get it myself and was very happy to be getting it. And so I think that the more we can kind of have these discussions in the open is helpful. And I think a lot of people have commented that knowing that their providers or their physicians are excited and happy to get it was kind of a good, um, I use the word barometer again, but kind of a good measure to say, hey, if these people feel comfortable getting it and feel like it's a good thing, then I feel more confident in it myself as well. So I think being open about the decision that I decided to make can be helpful. I completely agree. And, you know, it's, especially for, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I'm looking at it from the patient side. And if I'm talking to my physician that I know and trust, and they're talking to me about why they chose to get the vaccine rather than, the, than just the science behind it, you know, that just speaks volumes um, when it comes to that. And especially for a woman that was pregnant like yourself, you know, that also speaks volumes that you are, you're trusting the science and it helps people around you also trust the science behind it. So I think that's fantastic. Um, and as you know, we slowly wrap up here. And of course, with all your experience in fetal medicine, I imagine you were confident and wanted to receive the vaccine as well. You wanted to receive the vaccine as soon as you could. Um, (laughs) So what advice would you tell women that may be experiencing some deliberation to do so with being pregnant or if they have a fear of this impacts fertility? So I I really want to address the fertility concern head on. There is no data out there and no biologic plausibility of why getting a vaccine could impact someone's fertility. Now, that being said, it's almost an impossible thing to study because I can't clone someone and give one clone the vaccine and one clone not the vaccine and see which one gets pregnant first. So it's a very difficult thing to study and actually get data for, but there's no biologic plausibility that any of the you know, high governing bodies have been able to come up with, or, or I don't know where this kind of potential connection even came from. But, you know, the Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is the head organization for all of the doctors that work to get people pregnant and deal with those people who are dealing with infertility, they have come out and said, there is no connection here. We do not feel that this should be held back or anyone that's trying to get pregnant, battling infertility in any step of the fertility process should avoid getting the vaccine for this reason. So I really don't think that there's any connection there. And I would challenge women who are worried about it on that front to really talk to their providers who are providing their infertility care to get as much information as possible. Cause that has really kind of been a myth that sprang out of, I'm not sure what, and has been widely circulated, but we don't have any suspicion that that is an effect of the vaccine. Now, as far as in general, you know, we just want people to know that this is available to them. There are strong reasons to consider getting it. At this point, it's not mandated. Several organizations have danced around if they recommend it or don't recommend it. But in general, we want everyone to know it's out there, it's available, and to feel free to talk to their providers, but that you don't need a provider's permission to go get the vaccine. So if anybody is ever getting any pushback when they get the vaccine when they're pregnant, and anyone's asking, well, did your doctor say this is okay, et cetera, that's not appropriate. You are an adult, you make your own medical decisions, and at this point, there's no reason to prevent people from getting the vaccine while pregnant, and so you don't need anyone's permission to get it. But feel free to talk with your providers about it if you've got concerns. So many great points in there. Thank you. And I think 
I think everything that you've talked about with us today is going to help our physician members, especially when we think about, you know, family practice physicians where this vac- the vaccine slowly starting to roll out into that form rather than these mass clinics, just equipping our physician members with tools like this that, you know, they might not have the specialty in fetal medicine. So having these tidbits that they can share with patients, but at the same time for community members that are listening to this episode, you know, it just helps to, to have a different outlook and have somebody that fit a very small box of people that might be really nervous about it and to address, you know, the infertility. Cause you're right. I'm not sure how that started, but all of a sudden it just blew up into this. Another reason why people should stray away from the vaccine. So it's great that you can help in a way debunk those myths and just use the science behind it all. So we appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, great. Well, you answered all my questions. So anything that you want us to want to leave us with before we let you get on with your day? Just, you know, the the message I always try to leave medical students with and that I always want to kind of make sure it gets out there about our specialty is, you know, we take care of a lot of women that have a lot of medical illnesses that also happen to be pregnant. And so, you know, in a perfect world, I would never have to use any medicine for anybody who's pregnant or introduce anything that isn't, you know, part of their normal physiology. But we have life and people get ill and people have illnesses when they're pregnant. So the message that I always try to pass on to people I work with is, you know, if you've got a woman who's got a different medical disease or condition while she's pregnant, what I want people to ask themselves is what would you do for this person if they weren't pregnant? Because 95% of the time, it's not more than 95% of the time, we're going to find a way to help you do exactly that for this patient. So sometimes that's chemo during pregnancy. Sometimes that's dialysis during pregnancy. Sometimes that's using a blood pressure medicine that we have some data for, but not perfect data for in pregnancy. So you know, I think there's always really a concern about not doing anything that might hurt the pregnant woman, but not treating her diseases and not taking care of her like we're taking care of all the other adults in the world is not necessarily beneficial either. And so I think that applies for both vaccines and just in general for, you know, taking care of our patients with their chronic medical conditions while they're pregnant. So if you ever have any doubts about how to safely treat something during pregnancy, reach out to your friendly MFMs and uh, let us know because most of the time we'll be able to come up with a solution if, if we need to make any adjustments at all. That's such a great point. Um, and just a great perspective to have because you're right. It's kind of like, you know, we talked about that. This, the woman that's pregnant is like this awesome being and we're just like, don't, don't touch her for nine months. Um, but, but life happens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and that is why we have amazing specialists like you. So thank you so much for sharing that. And of course, Thank you for all of your work. And um, again, congratulations on your beautiful daughter. And it's just, it's so exciting that you'll have an awesome road ahead of motherhood, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Paige. And I appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Well, thank you all for listening in on Stethoscope and we will see you soon.